Amen. Well, today uh, we are starting a brand new series through the book of Philippians called Rejoicing in or Rejoice in the Lord. And it is in this series we're going to learn the importance of rejoicing in the Lord as opposed to rejoicing in our circumstances. Because as we all know, circumstances ebb and flow, they change. But God never does. Uh, it is said in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6, For I am the Lord, I change not. In Hebrews it says, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so He's always the same and He's the one we should be rejoicing in no matter what our circumstances look like. Obviously, it's easy to rejoice in the Lord when you get a raise, a promotion, when you hear that your children did well in school, when when you get good news, it's easy to get uh, to rejoice in the Lord, but it's quite a different thing to rejoice in the Lord when things aren't going your way, and that's what we're taught to do in Philippians. I mentioned uh, that you... I mentioned something, uh, I think it was Wednesday night or maybe even last Sunday, uh, but I think it was Wednesday night that just wait till Sunday because I'm going to give you something that you're going to go, wow. Here's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to issue a challenge to our church family, and that is to do this, to memorize the entire book of Philippians during this series. Now, I realize this is a challenge. But I want to assure you there are many people in this world who have memorized the entire New Testament and much of the Old. Um, this is a challenge to be sure, um, but I want to remind you there are only, and I know you're thinking the word only, there are only 104 verses in this book. And we're going to learn as a church, if you're doing the monthly verses on Sundays, and the monthly verses on Wednesdays, you'll memorize 24, so that's one-fourth. And, and that doesn't take a lot of effort. I know that you're thinking, man, I just memorized this one from June, and that was a paragraph. That was a whole book of the Bible in itself, it seems like. Um, but I, I want to I encourage you to do this. I've not memorized this book, and so I'm going to be working on this myself. Uh, but I think it's a worthy investment of time, and uh, we memorize a lot of other things that are empty and vain, but this is the eternal word of God, and it is worth our time and, and effort. So um, it's going to take some, some real work. Um, I've memorized only one other book in the Bible, and that is the book of Jude. It's only one chapter, and I think 23 or, or 24 verses, I think. Um, I did that uh, several years ago, but I'm challenging myself, and I want to issue that challenge to you as well. Um, I know it's going to take some real effort and, and, and uh, work, but I think it can be done. And one of the verses in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13, I know I'm a little taking it out of context a little bit, but uh, Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me, uh, including memorizing the book of Philippians. So um, I think that's an appropriate verse for us as uh, we think about that challenge. All right. Uh, go ahead and take your Bible and turn to the book of Philippians as we get started this, this morning with this series. And uh, we're going to look in uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. And then also, if you would, uh, flip over to uh, Acts chapter number 16. 
And I will warn you that we're going to be mostly in Acts chapter 16 this morning. But uh, once you kind of find that, if you would join me in standing for the reading of God's Word, we're going to read Philippians 1.1, and then we'll read uh, a few verses here in Acts chapter 16 to get started this morning. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, says this, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. So this book was written to uh, the believers there in Philippi. And then Acts chapter 16, verse number 9, says this, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathered gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to uh, Samothycra uh, and the next day to Necap- or Neapolis and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia and a colony. And we were in that city abiding certain days. And let's pray together. Lord, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for the book of Philippians and the encouragement it is to us to rejoice in you no matter what we're going through in our lives. And Lord, I pray that many of us in here would take the challenge to memorize this book of the Bible over the next uh, several months. And uh, Lord, I pray that uh, that would be a great help to us in our Christian lives. Lord, now as we look at the beginning of, of this church, I pray, Lord, you'd give us great wisdom and insight into how this church all started. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, before we really get into the book of Philippians, uh, I thought it would be wise for us and appropriate for us to go back in time and look how it all began for this church. Uh, This obviously, uh, this message today, I'm hoping will give us some context, and and I hope it'll help us to appreciate the book of Philippians a little bit better, knowing how this church was started. Um, and we're going to see, uh, we're going to also think about what memories were, were going through Paul's mind as he was writing the book of Philippians. Because some of what we're going to talk about today, I'm sure, passed through the mind of Paul as he was writing this letter to the Philippians. And uh, he was thinking back to how this church all began and thinking about some of the people in the church that were there. And so we're going to see this morning the beginnings of this church were actually quite humble. Things that are great often have humble beginnings. I think about several men in the Bible who accomplished great and mighty things, who most of the time came from very humble beginnings. I think of Gideon, the great judge who uh, was able to overcome the Midianites, if you recall that story with the, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Well, before that ever took place... Um, when uh, the angel of the Lord came to uh, let Gideon know that he was going to be the next deliverer of Israel. Here's what Gideon's response to the angel of the Lord. He said, Oh, my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. An unlikely candidate, a humble beginning to be sure. Well, I think also of King David. 
King David was, yes, the sweet psalmist of Israel, and most of the psalms that we read in the book of Psalms were written and penned by David himself. And David was the man after God's own heart, and he was the great king of Israel. But if you recall, it didn't always, it wasn't always silver spoons for Mr. David. No, he was actually the least in his father's house as well. When Samuel went to Jesse's house to go anoint the next king of Israel, Jesse brought all of his sons in with the exception of one. Because there's no way that this one would ever be uh, become a, a king. And he's too busy, by the way, tending to the sheep, doing what no one else wanted to be done and wanted to do. And he was the youngest in the house. And, and uh, we all know the rest of the story, humble beginnings. Even Paul himself, the human author of the book of Philippians, had humble beginnings as well. Oh, he had a great education, yes, and, and all of that. But when you look at his spiritual uh, resume, it wasn't exactly uh, shining. And, and uh, it wouldn't, it, he wouldn't be the who's, who's most likely to become the next apostle. <laughs> who's most likely to write a, a, a book of the Bible? No, Paul wouldn't have been there because he was a persecutor of Christians. He hated Christians. And he made it his life's mission to harm them and to deter them from doing their job. Humble beginnings. Consider some of the well-known companies of our day. I think about McDonald's, the Golden Arches. Here's how it all started. Two brothers opened the very first McDonald's car hop in 1937 after moving to California from New Hampshire. In the early years, they sold mostly barbecue. But after a decade, discovered that burgers were their most popular item. In order to up efficiency, the car hop approach was replaced with the production line principles that make up what we think of as fast food today. And the menu was recreated to feature burgers, fries, and shakes, and eventually nuggets, and all kinds of other things that are on the menu today. Uh, historians say that it was almost always cheaper and easier to open a restaurant in the 1930s than it is today, as it required no outside investment in many cases. So McDonald's had humble beginnings, but now it's a great empire. Apple. Apple also had some humble beginnings. Most people, of course, know that Apple started in a garage headed by a college dropout, and this is the house and the garage that Apple was started in. And the rest, as they say, is history. And many of us have at least one Apple device in our possession uh, and some multiple Apple devices in our possession. I won't name any names, me, uh, but Apple has definitely had some humble beginnings. And then Kentucky Fried Chicken, good old Colonel Sanders. The Colonel, or Harlan Sanders, was 62 years old when he began the move toward profiting on his chicken recipe. He had already had numerous careers, including working as an insurance salesman and, and, a, and a gas station employee. He eventually started selling chicken from a roadside stop in Utah during the Great Depression and began to find success. It was a welcome break from hamburgers and became one of the first chains to go international. However, in the beginning, Sanders simply traded his services for free rent at the filling station in which he was. And this is the filling station that you see on the screen here. Humble beginnings. And yet they went on to do great things. And the church at Philippi was no different. The beginning of this church was less than glamorous and easy. 
It was actually quite humble. So exactly how was this church at Philippi built? How did it all begin? The Bible records the first moments in this church in Acts chapter number 16. And I'd like to walk through some of these moments with you uh, this morning and and, uh, learn how this church was built. First of all, if you're taking notes this morning, I want us to notice that this church was built by the preaching of the gospel. It was built by preaching of the gospel. And uh, in verse number uh, 10, it says this in Acts chapter 16, And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. And I, and I realize there's a lot of humanitarian uh, causes out there and uh, needs for you know, helping the children and, and, and uh, teaching people how to you know, farm and, and uh, you know, create building wells for people. I, I know that there's a real need for all of that, but the preaching of the gospel was why Paul went to Philippi. And uh, the gospel is the most important need that we have. Uh, we have need for water, absolutely. We have need for good food, absolutely. But we have need most of all for a Savior. And uh, these other needs will help us temporarily, but the, the gospel will help us eternally. And I'm so thankful for that. Acts chapter 16 here, look in verse number 13. Here's kind of how it all started there in Philippi. And on verse 13, and on the Sabbath day, we... And uh, if you recall, who, does anybody know who the human author of uh, the book of Acts was? Anybody know? Dr. Luke. Dr. Luke was the uh, human author of uh, the book of Acts. And uh, he is there on the team, this missionary team goes out, Paul and Silas and uh, Timotheus. And also uh, Luke is part of this team as well. And so verse 13 says, on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city by a riverside where a prayer was wont to be made, and we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, and that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. So Paul begins to preach the gospel to uh, now, normally, Paul's M.O. was to go into a synagogue and teach there. Well, there were no synagogues in the town of Philippi. Uh, many, many scholars believe that uh, this, uh, this particular town was anti-Semitic. They didn't, they didn't like Jews. They didn't want Jewish people in their midst. Uh, they certainly had Jews in the midst, but they didn't really uh, let them have synagogues, and there really wasn't any place for them to worship. So as a result, Paul and his team went to this riverside and uh, had, a, had a little service there, found some women and, uh, who were open to the gospel and began to preach to them. And so, first of all, we see here, letter A, the, uh, he, he preaches the gospel to Lydia. And uh, I want us to kind of look at this uh, lady a little bit and, and, and determine who she was. Um, verse number 14, a certain woman named Lydia kind of stuck out from the crowd from the rest of the other ladies there. She was a seller of purple which, uh, of the city of Thyatira. And if you recall, last Sunday night we talked about Thyatira and uh, it, we, we, we learned that she had a part in that church somehow, uh, whether it was 
getting saved here in Philippi and going back home or whether she sent letters to her family back home in, in Thyatira. Um, at some point, she had, a, she had a part in that church there in Thyatira, but she also had a part in the church here at Philippi. She was a seller of purple, and uh, so she had a lot of different fabrics, and she was the original Joann's, you know, fabrics, and she was the original Hobby Lobby, you know, I guess. Um, and uh, the Bible says she worshipped God. Uh, so she, ha- she was a religious lady. She was a good lady. She was probably a moral lady. But she wasn't saved. And a couple things I want to point out about Lydia is, first of all, she wanted to hear. She wanted to hear the preaching. Verse 14, it says, which worshiped God, heard us. Those two words, heard us. She wanted to hear. She inclined her ears to what Paul was saying, and she was open to what Paul had to say. She was open to the truth. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, Paul says this to the church at Thessalonica. He says, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you receive the word of God which ye heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectively worketh also in you that believe. So uh, she wanted to hear because what Paul was saying was not just religious talk. It was the word of God. It was the gospel. It was the life-changing message of the gospel. And uh, I want to encourage us to have a, ears to hear the word of God and ears to hear the preaching. I read about former President Franklin Roosevelt who often endured long receiving lines at the White House during his presidency. He complained that no one really paid attention to what he said when he would walk by. One day during a reception, he decided to try an experiment. So to each person who passed down the line and shook his hand, he murmured something pretty shocking. He murmured, I murdered my grandmother this morning. Wow, that escalated quickly, didn't it? just to see if anybody paid attention to what he said. Well, sure enough, no one was paying attention. The guests responded with phrases like, Marvelous, keep up the good work, sir. We're so proud of you, sir. God bless you, sir. It wasn't until the end of the line while greeting the ambassador from Bolivia that his words were actually finally heard. But nonplussed, the ambassador leaned over and whispered, I'm sure she had it coming, sir. (laughs) I want to encourage us as we read God's word, as we hear God's word preached, to have ears to hear that it's not one ear and out the other. And, oh, I've heard this before. You see, Lydia had a heart to hear, and she wanted to know what was going on, and she wanted to know the truth. She inclined her ears to it. I want to encourage us to do that. So I want to ask you this question. Do you want to hear the word of God? Do you want to hear the truth? James 1.19 says this, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. You ever wonder why God gave us two ears and only one mouth? My son, in all of his wit, because he wants to justify all of his eating, he says, yeah, he gave us one mouth, but he gave us 32 teeth. Why is that? Arg. <laughs> You got me there, bud. 
But God did give us two ears and one mouth. He wants us to listen more than we talk. Doesn't say anything about eating, so I guess you're off the hook on that one, bud. So Lydia, she wanted to hear the preaching, but that wasn't it. She didn't only just want to hear the preaching, she wanted to heed as well. She wanted to heed the preaching. Over in verse 14 again, it says, Which worshipped God heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. Uh, The word attended unto means that she responded and she believed what was being said. So she responded to the word of God and chose to believe. Reminds me of earlier in the book of Acts when uh, the crowd was gathered around on the day of Pentecost and Peter was preaching the gospel. The Bible says in Acts chapter 2 verse 41, it says, Then they that gladly received his word. They gladly received, they heard the word, but then they received it. You know, see, there's something different about hearing the word and receiving the word. Uh, Today, I hope that you're hearing the word, but I hope that also you heed the word, that you respond to it, that you attend unto it, that you gladly receive it. So that day was a wonderful day for her. She believed in the gospel. She believed the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was a wonderful day. It was a day that she was saved. It reminds me of the song that John Peterson wrote. He wrote these words, Oh, what a wonderful, wonderful day, day I will never forget. After I'd wandered in darkness away, Jesus, my Savior, I met. Oh, what a tender, compassionate friend. He met the need of my heart. Shadows dispelling, and with joy I'm telling, he made all the darkness depart. And that was the case for Lydia, and that was the case for me when I was 12 years old, when I asked Christ to come into my heart and be my Savior, I believed on him. Oh, maybe you've heard the truth of Jesus Christ and his, about his miraculous virgin birth there in Bethlehem's manger. Maybe you've heard about his sinless life and his death on the old rugged cross. Maybe you've even heard about the fact that he rose from the dead three days later. But have you heeded that message? Have you attended unto that message like Lydia did? Have you personally believed in that message? I want to encourage you to do that today. And when it comes to hearing God's word and and, and heeding God's word, I I came across this quote from A.W. Tozer, who said this, To be entirely safe from the devil's snares, the child of God must be completely obedient to the word of the Lord. And then he went to say this, the driver on the highway is safe. Not when he reads the signs, but when he obeys them. And that's the same thing true for us as the children of God is, look, God's given us signs in his word. Well, we better read them, yes. That's not going to make us safe just by reading them and knowing what they are. We need to obey them. We need to do them. We need to heed the preaching. James put it this way, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. So Paul and his team preached to Lydia and she was graciously and gloriously saved. But notice they also had the opportunity to preach, secondly, to the demon-possessed girl. The the demon-possessed girl in verse number 16. 
Well, let's, let's go back up and read verse 15 here because this is a neat change that took place in Lydia's life. I kind of got ahead of myself here. Verse 15, when she was baptized, so that's the next step after you come to Christ, after you accept Christ as your Savior, you need to follow the Lord in believer's baptism like Lydia did. When she was baptized and her household, she besought us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. So Lydia's house was basically the first church building that the the town of Philippi had. And uh, she used her resources to serve the Lord and, and a great change had taken place in her life. And it all started with her coming to Christ. All right, verse 16. Came to pass as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with the spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by, by soothsaying. So here we see the demon-possessed girl. Now, the phrase spirit of divination, that means that she was basically a fortune teller uh, type of a person. And people would go and pay money to her, and, and uh, she would have to give a good portion of that money to uh, her bosses, which it says here in verse 16, her masters, or which brought her masters much gain. So uh, her bosses got pretty, pretty rich because of this girl who uh, was able to tell fortunes. But unfortunately, we're told in the Bible that dealing with these type of people were strictly prohibited under the law of Moses. It was in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse number 9, that we read these words. When thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not learn to do after the abominations of those nations. What were those abominations? It goes on to say in the next verse, There shall not be found among you anyone that maketh his son or his daughter to pass through the fire, or that useth divination, or an observer of times, or an enchanter, or a witch, or a charmer, or a consulter with familiar spirits, or a wizard, or a necromancer. For all that do these things are an abomination unto the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee. So God here forbids his people to participate in any of those type of practices. By the way, we need to be very careful in our day as believers. Look, horoscopes are not just fun and games. Uh, There is a spirit behind all of that. And we're commanded as God's people to... Uh, Stay away from all of that. And the fortune teller, I want want to know my future. Look, the thing is, as we're going to learn here, some of those spirits do tell the truth. They tell you enough truth to get you in and get you trapped, and then they start telling lies. So the demon-possessed lady was here, and, and here's what she was doing in verse 17. The same followed Paul and us, and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show us the way of salvation. I want us to see here, under, under this thought here, that she was very distracting. Now, the word cried here in verse 17 is the word, Greek word krazo. Can you guess what word we get from that? Looney tune. Crazy. And this word basically means to croak as a raven or scream. That is generally to call aloud, shriek, or exclaim. So I can just picture this girl 
following Paul and this missionary team. And she was not saying, these men are the servants of the Most High God, which show us the way of salvation. No, that's not how she was saying it. She was crying it. She was squealing it. These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show us the way of salvation. Okay? Annoying. Very annoying. And then look at verse number 18. The Bible says this, And this did she many days. It was like kind of, you know, fingernails on a chalkboard. Yes, it was true. These were the servants of the Most High God, and and they were showing the way of salvation. But again, the way she was doing it was extremely distracting. And it finally got to the point where it got under Paul's skin. And he said, I've got to do something about this. And he realized, um, and look what he does here in verse number 18. And this did she many days, but Paul being grieved. Again, I don't know if the Greek word for that means annoyed, but I know I would have been annoyed and distracted from what I'm trying to do here. Paul being grieved turned and said to the girl, That's not what it says, is it? It said to the Spirit. You see, Paul understood what this was. He realized that his enemy wasn't this girl. He realized this was a spiritual war that he was in. It wasn't the girl that was the problem. It was the demon inside her. Look, we need to remember that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So if there's some distracting, annoying people in your life, it's not necessarily them that's the problem, even though we think it is. There is spiritual warfare going on. Paul understood the spiritual warfare that he was fighting. And every time that you try to go forward for the Lord, the devil seems to fight. And that was definitely the case here in Philippi is... Paul was trying to get the gospel to these people there in this town. This girl comes along and distracts Paul and the team with, yes, true, but the way she was doing it and how often she was doing it. And she was following him around and it was like, oh, not her again. Yes, it is. She was distracting, but praise the Lord, it doesn't end there. She was delivered. We see that in verse number 18. It says, uh, she, he turned and said to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. The next part of the verse says, and he came out the same hour. This was, a, this was a pretty special thing. To see this demon come out of this girl. She was finally set free from this oppression that she's had for who knows how long. Boy, we could take a long time and talk about demon possession and, and the spirit, spiritual implications of all of this. Um, I need to kind of move on for sake of time, but I, I do want us to uh, think about this verse in 1 John 4 and verse 4. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And as Paul said to that spirit, I command thee in the name... If he just said, I command thee to come out of her... Would he have come out of her? The answer is no. The key there was, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. 
And the Bible says, and he came out the same hour. He obeyed because every name is, everyone is going to be obedient to the name of Jesus Christ at some point in the future. She was delivered. So the church is off to a great start. Lydia comes to Christ. A demon gets cast out of this girl. I mean, so far, so good, right? Everyone is rejoicing. Everyone is happy that Paul and his team are there. Not so much. Because that leads to the fact that this church was also built not only on the preaching of the gospel, but secondly, on the persecution of the godly. Not everybody was happy that these men were there giving the gospel and getting people saved and, you know, doing the work of the Lord. Not everybody had banners said, welcome, the Apostle Paul is coming to town. Let's everybody here. Not everybody was happy. Because look in verse number 19. So this demon gets cast out of this girl. She set free. We would all be happy. But her bosses were not happy in verse number 19. And when her masters saw that their, the hope of their gains was gone, when they saw their paychecks fly away, they said, oh, well, at least she's doing better. That's not what they thought. They got angry with the men who did this. They caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace under the rulers brought them to the magistrate saying, these men being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city. Well, they weren't troubling the city. They were trying to help people. They were trying to give them what they needed most, the gospel of Christ. Verse 21, they, they, they teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans making all kinds of outlandish uh, accusations against these men. Okay, so these servants of God face persecution. This, this obviously should not be a shock to those who are living godly. In fact, it was Paul who later told Timothy, Yea, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. He said, you know that we're going to, this isn't going to be a shock when you go and do something for the Lord you're going to have to deal with some persecution along the way. Paul and his team are experiencing it. Now, not exactly what these men had hoped for, but still something I'm sure they, didn't, they weren't shocked with. They weren't going, wow, this is brand new, this idea of persecution. And so a couple things about the persecution here of the godly. First of all, their, their false accusations is, is found here in verses 19 through 21. Again, they're... They're, they're, they're said that they were exceedingly troubling the city. No, they weren't troubling the city. They were honestly trying to get the gospel to people and help the city. And then in verse 21, there, there's some more false, accu- false accusations here in verse 21, teaching customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. And look, the, the, what, what drove these men to uh, bring on this persecution to this uh, missionary uh, team here was because of the love of money. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced them through with many sorrows. The love of money caused them to do things that maybe they, were, they never thought they would end up doing, 
But when they saw their paychecks go fly away, they thought, we've got to do something, and we've got to do something now, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to take them, we're going to destroy them, we're going to get even with them. They hurt our pocketbooks, we're going to hurt their lives. Their false accusations led to their false imprisonment. Their false imprisonment. In verse 22, the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates ran off their clothes and commanded to beat them. So they were tortured. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. So there are uh, a couple thoughts about their false imprisonment. First of all, their treatment. Their treatment. Well, first of all, their clothing was removed, and that's obviously a humiliating, humiliating thing to have happen. And then they were beaten. And then the Bible says in, uh, in verse number uh, 23, when they had laid many stripes upon them. So it wasn't like one little lash and, you know, be good now. I mean, they went to town on these, on these, on these men. They laid many stripes upon them. And they were cast into the inner prison. So this was not a this was not a cell that had access to the outside. Let me raise your hand if you've ever been on a cruise. Would you raise your hand? Okay, if you've been on a cruise and you've had a window in your room, would you raise your hand? Okay, if you've ever been on a cruise and never had a window, raise your hand. Yes, that's that's us. <laughs> that's the inner prison of a cruise ship. Okay? And, uh, and one year we went on a cruise, one of the cruises we went on, we've been on like how many, three or four? Her grandma was so gracious to us and paid for us to go on a few cruises earlier on in our marriage. And uh, I th- one of the last ones we went on, I think, well, the last one we went on was just you and I, but the one, last one we went with children, uh, Faith was about six months old, and she had just, uh, she, had, she had had whooping cough for a little while. And uh, we get in the cruise ship, and, you know, she's not contagious anymore. Well, she started to develop a fever when we were on this cruise ship, and we took her to the doctor on the cruise ship, and he said, you know, she's, she's got whooping cough, and she's got this fever. She's contagious. You need to stay in your room until this fever breaks. Um, we're like, okay, so she needs to stay in the room, and then the rest of us, you know, we can kind of treat. She's like, he's like, no, the entire family has to stay in your room until that fever breaks. We're like, okay, what about food? That's why they have room service. But, you know, that's kind of, there's not a lot of room. There's no windows. Yes, but that's where you get to be until this girl breaks her fever. So we did everything we knew how to do to try to get that fever to break. And, uh, I know I'm in church, so I shouldn't lie. We didn't stay in that room all together the entire time. <laughs> because I am telling you what, that was prison, I am telling you. I mean, yes, yes, it was nice having uh, room service. It was nice the first two days. But then it got real old real fast, didn't it? The smells in that room, I mean, with two boys... It was just, you know, we needed to get some fresh air, I am telling you. Well, can you imagine the inner prison that Paul and Silas were in? I mean, this was no cruise ship. They didn't get, you know, shrimp cocktail with the, uh, 
you know, ring of a phone up to the front desk. They, they didn't get any of that treatment. Uh, let me explain what the cells were like in those days. Most cells there were dark, especially the inner cells of a prison like the one Paul and Silas inhabited in Philippi. They were unbearably cold. They had lack of water. They were cramped quarters. And there was a sickening stench from few toilets, making sleeping difficult and waking hours absolutely miserable. Because of these miserable conditions, many prisoners begged for a speedy death. Others simply committed suicide because they couldn't live like that any longer. This is what these men faced for simply trying to do the work of the Lord. And their feet were also put into stocks. Verse uh, 24, made their feet fast in the stocks so they couldn't really move. Now let's stop and think for a moment for those who maybe have a little bit of knowledge about the book of Philippians. Does anybody know where the Apostle Paul was when he wrote the book of Philippians? He was on a resort sipping lemonade, wasn't he? No, he was in prison. He was in a Roman prison for two years. And uh, you can see that in the book of Philippians. We'll go through it in more detail as we uh, get into the actual book. But he was in prison. It is interesting to think that while Paul was in prison, he wrote to a church about rejoicing in the Lord. Easy to rejoice in the Lord when you're sitting on a resort sipping Diet Coke, right? But quite another when you're in a first century prison. And yet I'm sure as he wrote this book, his mind went back to how this church all started because it started with him in prison. I'm sure as he was writing, hey, rejoice in the Lord, and he's in prison and he's thinking back, I remember when this church was started 10 years prior, 10 years ago, a decade earlier, I was sitting in a prison cell for trying to get the gospel out into this city. So their treatment, but I want you to see, secondly, their testimony. How did they respond to this type of treatment? I mean, they were treated unfairly. They weren't doing anything wrong. They weren't breaking any laws. They were simply trying to do the work of the Lord. And here they were mistreated. How would they respond? What would their testimony be? I know what mine probably would have been. It would have said in verse 25, and at midnight, Eric griped and complained and whined about his situation. That's what verse 25 would have been if I were in this situation. I know I would have been tempted to complain and gripe. I would have had a pity party, but unfortunately the problem with pity parties is that no one else wants to come to them. <laughs> you know, that's, all the, that's not at all the response Paul and Silas had, though. The Bible records that, first of all, they prayed. Good call. In verse 25, at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed. You know, prayer really should be our first step, not our last resort. And then after prayer, though, they did something curious. They sang praises to God. Are you serious? I'm in this stinky, cold, dark prison cell. Let's have a singspiration. It's not what my response would have been, but that was Paul and Silas' response. And personally, I can't, I can't really think of a worse time to break out in song, and yet, actually, that's the perfect time to break out in song. 
There's a song that um, I've heard before, and I don't know who wrote it exactly, but it says this, their chains were fastened tight, talking about what happened here. Down at the jail that night, still Paul and Silas would not be dismayed. They said, it's time to lift our voice, sing praises to the Lord. Let's prove that we will trust him come what may. God wants to hear you sing. Oh, when the waves are crashing round you, when the fiery darts surround you, when despair is all you see, God wants to hear your voice. When the wisest man has spoken and says your circumstance is as hopeless as can be, that's when God wants to hear you sing. He loves to hear our praise on our cheerful days. When the pleasant times outweigh the bad by far, but when suffering comes along and we still sing him song, that is when we bless the Father's heart. And you know, these two men realize that, that, look, it's easy to sing when everything's going well, but when we're in prison and things aren't, that's when I'm going to sing anyway. You know, I'm sure when Paul and Silas, Timotheus and Luke were at this, you know, church planning conference prior to going to Philippi and, and the, the, the keynote speaker was talking, I'm sure he'd never mentioned anything about persecution. That wasn't necessarily on the list of things they were supposed to do when they got to the city, and yet... Romans 8.28 was in full effect here as the Lord did some great and mighty things through this time of persecution. Because that leads to number three, and quickly, uh, this morning, well, we're almost, well, this afternoon, I'm sorry. (laughs) You're all wondering, it ain't morning anymore. (laughs) I realize that. Don't worry, we're almost done. We see here the power of God. Because they they didn't stay in prison. By the way, in verse 25, it says, and the prisoners heard them sing. So when we do this, our testimony is known by many. And oftentimes, that's when people notice our testimony a lot more when we're going through times of persecution and suffering, not when we're going through a wonderful time. Well, verse 26 tells us uh, the power of God is seen in delivering the servants. Verse 26, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bands were loosed. So an earthquake must have been a coincidence, right? Look, there are never any coincidences with God. Everything he does is calculated and at the exact right moment. And God is still a miracle working God and he cares for his own. The Bible says in Psalm 34, verse 19, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. So the Lord delivered uh, his servants through this earthquake. And it was God, it wasn't just, you know, Mother Nature, Mother Earth, you know, had an earthquake. No, it was the Lord that caused this, and he delivered his saints. And then secondly, we see here the power of God in saving the sinners. Verse 27, I'll just kind of read down through this. I won't stop and go through a lot of comments, although I I would like to. But verse 27, And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. He realized that if all the prisoners leave, he's out of a job, and actually he's probably going to be killed himself. So he thought, I'm just going to speed the process along and take care of it myself. But Paul cried with a loud voice saying, Hey, do, not, do thyself no harm, for we're all here. We're not going anywhere. 
Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said this wonderful, wonderful question. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. He took them the same hour of the night, washed their stripes, and was baptized, he and all his, straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them, rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. What a wonderful story. He went from wanting to end it all to having a Christian home with joy, serving the men who he was guarding in their prison cell just a few hours earlier. What a wonderful change. What a change Christ can make in someone's life. Has he made a change in yours? What I'm talking about here is not turning over a new leaf. I'm talking about a new life. And that life can only be found in Jesus Christ. I'll wrap it up here this this afternoon now. Um, So we've seen that this church had had humble beginnings for sure. And yet how appropriate to understand, especially when we realize the main purpose of the book of Philippians was to encourage believers to rejoice in the Lord. No matter what circumstances you are facing, if you're doing well and everything's just going your way, rejoice in the Lord. When you're in a prison cell, praise the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. No matter what your circumstances are, uh, you're facing, you can still make the choice to rejoice, not in your situation, but in your Savior. In spite of it all, God tells us to rejoice in Him. Also, in the story of how this church at Philippi began, we see a couple of people who heard the gospel and then received or then responded by believing on Christ. Maybe you're like Lydia, religious but wanting to know the truth. Or maybe you're like the Philippian jailer with no hope, whose future looks so dark, thoughts of ending it all run through your mind. I want to encourage you to listen to the words of Acts 16.31 as we close this afternoon. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for how this church started. Uh, We can learn so many principles and truths from this story. I wish I had a little more time to go into uh, some of these other aspects of this story. But Lord, I I pray you'd help us to know that rejoicing the Lord has little to do with our circumstances and everything to do with who you are. Help us to keep that in mind because we see the good things and we see the, the challenging times that Paul and his team faced there at the beginning of this church. And Lord, I I thank you for the testimony of of these who accepted Christ as Savior, who believed on Christ and were gloriously saved, like Lydia and and, uh, the jailer and his family. Lord, I pray that you would help us to make sure that we're also saved. Help us to hear the truth and hear the gospel, but then to heed the gospel by placing our faith and trust in it. And then, Lord, help us to rejoice in you no matter what circumstance we're in. Help us to rejoice, not in our circumstances, but to rejoice in the Lord. We'll thank you for all you do in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.